we're in a very particular time in human history. In fact, all of us, whether you know it or not, you're living through history. You're living through something that will mark the history books. You're living through something just based on the numbers themselves and based on what's happened in the economy, the world economy, based on how the world's reacted. Your grandkids, your kids will ask you, grandma, grandpa, great grandma, how'd you, how'd you react? What was life like? These are moments that we'll remember. Again, they'll be recorded in history. Now, what will the story be? I think a lot of times we look at social media and we think we've already fabricated the story. We understand what it looks like. I don't think we're really going to know for about 10 or 20 years of what the story really looks like when this is all over. But I know there are definitely two streams in which people address this idea of this pandemic. There's two different streams, uh, and, and they're, they're kind of polar opposites. The one is, well, permissivism, right? We're, we just, we just want to get back to life. We just want to permit everybody to go back to what's normal. We want to go back to living life as usual. And then there's the other side. There's the legalism. No, let's stay locked up. Let's stay locked up until we know for sure that we can handle this disease, this bug. Let's, let's keep everybody on lockdown. You know, in our spiritual lives, both of those ideas are constantly at war. In, in some of the, the, the Asian traditions, they, they call it the idea of the yin and the yang, that there's balancing forces. There are balancing forces in our life, permissivism, permissiveness, and legalism, where we would say, no, we can do, we have liberty, we have freedom to do as God's called us, and maybe even the, the whims of our own selfish desire, we have, we have liberty to do what we want to do. And then there's the other side, the legalistic side that says, no, you will follow the rules. You will follow every rule. You'll follow the rules to their completed out perfectly. And you know, my wife is much more of a legalist than I am. I find out I'm definitely a rule breaker, except for when we get in the car and we're driving anywhere. The woman drives like a bat out of hell, but it's how she is. She loves to drive fast. Fact, when we were Younger, we, we, we first got married, we bought this little BMW, we had souped up, and man, we really loved this little three series BMW. And I remember coming around a corner of a cloverleaf, and I look at the speedometer, I'm sitting in the passenger seat, and she's at 80 miles an hour, I'm like, how can you drive that fast around a cloverleaf? Like, we're, we're not late, it's okay. But she just loves to drive fast. She's a little more permissive on that side. I'm a little more legalistic. I've gotten a few too many tickets. I used to drive real fast and not think about the speed limit or the stop signs, just blow through them. You know, I used to have that idea in my head when I was in high school, no cop stop. Like I didn't see a police officer. Let's keep going. Not a good way to live life. Eventually you get tagged and the cop gives you a ticket and reminds you that there are rules for a reason. This all centers on our idea of rightness and rightness in the Bible is this big theological word called righteousness. When you and I maintain a sense of rightness with others, when you and I maintain a sense of rightness with God, it's the concept of what the Bible says, righteousness. The idea of guarding our heart is really about understanding our righteousness or our rightness between ourselves and God. In fact, when we're not guarding our heart well, when our heart is in despair, when our heart is in a funk, when we feel depression, that's because... There's something off track with our rightness or our righteousness. See, righteousness, the idea or the doctrine of righteousness will either be a cornerstone in your life or it will be a stumbling block. 
It will either be a cornerstone and something you can build your faith on, or it will be a stumbling block, something that trips you up over and over and over and over. The Bible teaches that more people were upset at the early church for teaching on the concept of righteousness or rightness in Christ Jesus than they were really the historical concept of Jesus. In fact, they even were okay with saying, well, maybe he is heavenly, maybe he is divine, maybe he was a good teacher, maybe he was a solid rabbi, but don't you dare start talking about the idea that he came to make us right or righteous. Because the, at that time, the only thing that could make them right or righteous were the rules, the legalistic rules. And Jesus seemed to be some, something of, well, he seemed to be something of a, per, of a permissive nature. He seemed to say, throw the rules out or I'm going to rewrite the rules. Or I'm going to adopt new rules. And adopting new rules, I might change the whole of the history that you know. And so Jesus constantly was on this teeter-totter, this balancing act of this religious ideal and following the rules and this permissive nature of saying, no, no, you have freedom in Christ. You have freedom to have a life in God. And this is what it means to balance the idea of righteousness. Religious people, again, they don't get upset when you preach Jesus. You can preach historical Jesus. You can preach Jesus on the cross. You can preach Jesus all day. I don't think you understand. You could cause people to sin. What if you preach the idea that people are right in God's eyes because of what Jesus did on the cross and they go out and commit some egregious sin? You know, no one ever calls me and asks me before they sin. That's never happened before. I've never gotten a phone call in the middle of the night. Hey, pastor, I'm about to do something really dumb and stupid. What do you think? Of course I would say, no, don't do that. The reality is that we come to a place in Christ Jesus where we understand our rightness is in him and it helps us set the bedrock for our spiritual life. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. It says this, God made him who knew no sin, this is talking about Jesus, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God so that in him we might become the rightness of God. Let that statement permeate for a second, right? The Bible says very clearly, this man of heaven, this God in flesh, God incarnate came to the earth. He knew no sin. He didn't stumble. He didn't trip. He didn't falter. He didn't fail. He had no sin in his life. And the Bible says that God put all the sins, past, present, future sin, every sin you've ever committed, every sin you're committing currently, and every sin you're going to commit was all wrapped up in the cross. And the Bible says because of that action, we might become the rightness of God. We might have a right standing, a right stead in God. Now, we understand this on a practical level. When our kids goof up and do something stupid, they're not right with us. They come to us, and they sometimes get a punishment. In fact, my sons have come many, many, many times, said, Dad, I've done, done something wrong. Sometimes I've had to come to them and say, boys, this isn't right, and we've had to make correction. You know, there are other times in life that as a good dad, I just put out a good warning. I say, boys, don't do that. When we're doing dishes, it's kind of cool, right? It's a machine and you don't know really what it does when you're a kid. And you see mom and dad putting dishes in and out of it, mostly mom. And they come over to want to help mom and she's doing the dishes. And every time they've come over, I've said, watch your hands. They're going to get caught. Don't mess with the door. They're going to get caught. And both of our boys were stubborn enough 
dry. They, their hand gets caught in, in the dishwasher and they think, oh my gosh, look at that, it hurt. And I could think that my sons could reason in their brain. My sovereign father was so angry at me that I didn't do what he asked me to do, that he hurt me vis-a-vis the dishwasher. I didn't have anything to do with that. You know, most of us, that's how we view God. He has come to set us right. He has come to make all things right in our life. Let that sink in for a second. Most of us walk through this cycle from time to time because we haven't learned to guard our heart even from our emotional center and core. Our emotional center and core wants to blame somebody for what happens in our life. It doesn't want to say I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, that regardless of my past, present, or future sin, and in justifying, we look to the heavens and say, God, I'm so sorry that I wronged you. God, I'm so sorry that I hurt you. That sin was paid for the moment Jesus hung on the cross. Not that you don't have to repent, but our repentance is not about groveling and dragging ourselves through the mud. Our repentance is about understanding. I've got to get back into the right light of how God sees me. Though I messed up, though I broke the rules, and though there might be pain associated, it's not at the hand of God because he loves me. It's not at the hand of God because he cares for me. He's already paid way for my sin. It's not at the hand of God because I know I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. See, most people live through this cycle when they get saved. They get saved. They come to Jesus. They recognize they're at their wit's end, that they can't do this life on their own. They come to the cross. They recognize Jesus is the saving factor of life. And in that moment, life is good. Life is good for a while. We've all lived this cycle. You get saved, life is great. And then all of a sudden there's pressure that mounts. Pressure from outside, pressure from inside. All of a sudden we get a little bit, well, we're, we're a little bit frustrated with our spiritual life. All of a sudden we start to recognize that sin didn't just magically disappear. We still have a free will. And sometimes we choose to do something other than what is God's best. We get frustrated and we start to disqualify ourselves. We fall back into this pattern of saying, well, God, if, if I work really, really hard, will you take this human thing in me that wants to do the wrong thing? Will you take it out of me? And we start to struggle. We start to struggle with ourselves, And we say things to God like, God, if, if I pray long enough, if I give more money, if I go to church more, if I get more spiritual, God, will you lift the burden? We take away the burden of my human nature. And then it doesn't disappear overnight. We fall back into sin. And then we get deep, depressed on ourselves. Why did we do that? We beat ourselves up. And then we go back to repentance and we repent of in this cycle. The reason is we don't understand what it is to be the righteousness of God in Christ. We don't understand that what it is the moment that you failed or that you sinned, that you don't have to repeat the cycle, that you can go to God and say, God, I screwed up. I am thoroughly sorry, but I'm not living in depression. Living in darkness. I'm not going to rehash those issues. I'm not going to go back to that same old self that today I'm planning to live differently. Today I'm planning to live in the righteousness of God. God, I know you see me as right. Help me see me as right. God, I know you see me as one that's forgiven. Help me see myself as one is forgiven. Rather than trying to work it out again through that cycle by our own effort. So many people get caught in this cycle. Too many of us cling to this pattern. This is a very good picture of what it looks like when we lose track of guarding our heart. We started this series off with the idea to guard your heart for out of it flows the issues of life. All the issues that life entails come from our heart. That if our heart is centered on God, if our heart is centered on the gospel, but if we get off center for a moment, 
if we get alter for a moment, then we start to lose shape and lose vision of what we are after. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn the book of Judges. Judges chapter 21 and verse 25. Now Judges, the book of Judges, particularly the Israelite people in the book of Judges are a good example for us in the Old Testament of how we fall to these cycles. In fact, we see in the book of Judges that God's people repeatedly fell to this similar cycle. They worshiped God with everything they had. They got a little bit frustrated with their situation their present circumstance in life. They drew back. They started to do things against the will of God. Then they repented. Then they started the cycle all over again. In Judges chapter 21 and verse 25, it says this. This is key to understanding the entire book. It says, back in those days, Israel didn't have a king. So each person did whatever seemed right in their own opinion. This is the problem when we defy the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus that we are. We start to go to our own opinion on how we should fix or remedy the issues of life. We go back to the cycle because we say, well, listen, God, I know you've called me. You've separated me. You've set me apart. You've forgiven me. God, I know that you make me right in your eyes through the sacrifice of the cross. But I got to tell you, if I prayed more, I think I'd feel more supernatural. God, I got to tell you, I know you've set everything to right. You've made my spirit just like Jesus is. God, you've, re, you've refashioned my soul, this eternal being, to live with you forever in heaven. But I've got to tell you something, God. If I go to that church just a few more times, I know I'm finally going to hit the marker. I'm going to be a super Christian. Hallelujah. The problem is we have come to our own understanding. We're doing whatever seems right in our own eyes rather than going to the scripture, rather than coming to the words, the actual words of God written on paper. We've decided that we know best, even in our spiritual works, even in our spiritual practices, that we know best and we're gonna set our own world to right through efforts. Unfortunately, it's not all what God had in mind. We all have doctrines, we all have theories that we've collected throughout life about our spiritual life and about who God is. And most of them are great, they're on point. You have good doctrine for the most part. But sometimes we can't seem to get it to work for us. We have an idea that's lined out all the way through scripture of healing, that God heals, that our sovereign God heals those who are oppressed and those who are sick. Some of us can't get it to work. Because it's how we view our righteousness. We're not the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus because he's washed away our sin, because he, was, he knew no sin and then he became sin on our behalf. We don't understand that fact so that we go to God and say, okay, God, I know you made a way for healing, but I'm gonna figure out how to pay for it. I wanna figure out how to pay for it. This transactional relationship that we have, it's, it can't just be built on your unadulterated love for me. It has to be built on some effort of mine. So how can I pay you for what you've already done? In fact, most of us live like life this way. We look at a set of bills and circumstances and we think, okay, God, what do I have to do to pay you off so that you come in and provide a miracle? We look at our health and our healing and our protection even from this virus and we say, okay, God, what have I got to do to pay you to keep me from this virus? How many of you, and don't, don't raise your hands, don't honk your horns, don't flash your lights, but how many of you prayed prayers early on in this COVID-19 thing? God, if you keep me from this virus, my family, I'll go to church every single Sunday for the next year. He heard those prayers. You better get your butt in church. <laughs> I'm joking. The fact is that we don't have to figure out how to pay for anything. He says you are the righteousness of 
God in Christ Jesus. You are already in right standing with him. The man who was no sin, who knew no sin whatsoever, was made complete and utter sin. Every sin you've ever committed, every sin you will commit, every sin you're in the process of committing, he took to that cross. said, son, daughter, I paid the price. Now learn to walk in what I can give you. What we believe, what we believe qualifies us for God's promises is where we placed our trust. If you believe you are qualified for God's promises, not because you're right in God's eyes, because of what Jesus did. If you believe what qualifies you for the promises of God is by how much you give, how much you serve, how much church attendance, how much you read the Bible, how much you pray, then forever that will be the currency in which you are using to pay God off to finally just be God on your behalf. But the moment you let go and say, no, you're going to do this because I'm a child of God. You're going to keep me safe. You're going to keep me protected. You're going to heal my body. Why? Because I'm a child of God. You're going to keep my financial situation stable in this rough, turbulent time because I'm a child of God. God, you're going to heal and mend my marriage, not because I'm the perfect husband or the perfect spouse, but because I'm a child of God. God, you're going to bring my wayward son or daughter back to the faith, not because I'm running them down like a hound dog, but because I'm a child of God. They matter to you and you'll bring them back into the family. You don't have to worry and try to figure out how to pay God off to receive the promises that he's already made way for. That means that whenever area of life that you trust your works, your efforts, any area of life that you trust that you can make it happen by your own power, that's an area where you've lost righteousness. You've lost what it means to be in right standing with God. The problem is we become this very high-minded intellectual society. Many of us, and I, I don't use this, don't take this the wrong way, but many of us are a lot like the Pharisees. They had to have all the info. They had to cons consult with all of the rabbis. They had to look through all the ancient literature. And Jesus very much said, you don't know what you're talking about half the time. And many of us do that. I, I fall into that trap, right? I'm a data kind of guy. I like statistics. I like the numbers. They mean something to me. I have this phrase that runs in the back of my head. The facts don't care about your feelings. It runs there all the time because I don't want to be ruled by my emotions, but I can be ruled sometimes by numbers and data when God said that doesn't matter at all. The only thing that matters are my promises, not even how you feel about them, but the only thing that matters isn't the data you have collected. It's not what a professional has said. The only thing that matters is what I've said. What does my word say? What have I promised you? Are you going to get out of the way and try, stop trying to figure it out, or are you just going to live in the promises of God? I think sometimes because we've become such an information-driven culture, we fail to understand that the gospel is less about information. You know, you can know the gospel and not be saved. You can know Jesus was born of a virgin birth. You can know that he, he lived a sinless and perfect life. You can know that he was God's oracle, a teacher of God. You can know that he died on a cross, that he died for the sins of humanity, and that doesn't save you. You can have all of that information just compiled in your little brain. That won't save you. Eventually, you have to have an experience. Eventually, you have to have an experience where you lay your guard down, you let your heart down, and you say, okay, God, be Lord of my life. Jesus, be Lord of my life. And in that moment, salvation comes. But it can't come 
pre the experience, even with all the compounded knowledge. In our life, and I think in our, in our culture, in our society, we've learned to compound knowledge because it makes us right. It's a new way to pay off the debt and be right or righteous in our eyes and in the eyes of others. It's hard to sit back in the culture that we live in, stop arguing and say, listen, I know I'm right. I know I'm righteous. Why? Because of what Jesus did on the cross. I know I'm healed because of what Jesus did on the cross. I know I'm protected because of Christ's sacrifice. I know that I'm separated, set apart, sanctified. Why? Not because of anything I've done on my own, but because I put my trust in Jesus. This morning, that's the heart. I hope it's compelling. However, I also know that in all the information I could give you, there's one moment in time, there's one sentence, there's one song, there's one refrain that connects you with the Holy Spirit. And that's really what matters. We do an entire service, tech team set up, words on the screen, lighting, wonderful music, wonderful praise and worship. I hope you like the preaching, but we do all of that because there's a, there's a moment in every service where you connect with the Holy Spirit. There's a moment where you connect with God. There's a moment, and it's usually like that millisecond, that nanosecond, where you just pick it up and go, oh yeah, that was for me. That was for me. That's God connecting with me here and now. We do it all. We'll do it all every single week without fail over and over and over and over again. Why? Because you need to have that spark that spark of connection, that spark of community, that spark that says, I am a child of God. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. If you have your Bibles, Matthew 9, I'm going to burn through this story very quickly because I don't have time to get through all the, the scripture in, in, uh, directly. But Matthew 9 and verse 41, there's a story of a blind man that Jesus actually heals. Because Jesus heals the blind man and it's totally contrary to the religious rules and it's totally contrary to how the religious elites would have done it. They kick him out of the temple. They're pretty ticked off at him. In fact, it's one of the arguments that they later use to address Jesus as someone who needs to be murdered, as someone who needs to be crucified. Jesus gets on a rant and he starts talking to these high-minded religious individuals and he says these words in John chapter 9 and verse 41. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you'd say you have no sin. But since you see, we see, your sin remains. Very quickly, the hearers understood he wasn't talking about physical sight. Very quickly, they understood he used the parallel of a blind man who had been healed to come right against their religious idea of righteousness. They were right. They were righteous because they followed the rules. They were right. They were righteous because of their position. Jesus broke down the whole construct and said, listen, if, I, if, if you said to me that, that you were blind, you couldn't see, that there might be an opportunity for you. But because you tell me, because you say in your heart of hearts that you see how it is, you know how it's all going to be, in that you are totally and utterly blind. We have a world that out there believes that they understand how things are to be. They think they believe and understand how this world will be remade even after COVID-19. They think they understand who the powers are that are controlling this world. They have no idea. They are so absolutely blind. The only person that matters 
in this story. The only person that matters in this moment of history is Jesus himself and what he's doing through his people and what he's doing through the church. It really doesn't matter what the pundits say and it really doesn't matter even what the doctors say. It really doesn't matter how we feel at any given moment. And again, I'm as human as anyone in here. I have to fight these impulses myself. Though he knew no sin, he became all the sin so that you could live now in right standing with the Father. Two major takeaways that I want you to understand today. When the Pharisees saw that this blind man was healed, they couldn't see the value in him. God had to do something miraculous for them to even take notice. Too many of us feel diminished because our rightness is sitting right in front of us. Our righteousness is sitting right with us. And the world around us doesn't get it. But God's going to exalt you, lift you up, do something great through you and in you. And in that, the world will see the righteousness of God that is on display if you'll let him and if you'll allow it. All doctrine boils down to a very simple concept. Is it working for you? I don't care what you believe. I don't care what you believe about God. I don't care what you believe about the scriptures. I don't care what you believe about Jesus. The question comes, essentially, is it working for you? Do you believe? Do you believe in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus? And if you do, is it working for you? Do you get caught in the cycle that we talked about of, you know, rejoicing, excitement, and then maybe a little displeasure, and then finally sin, and then a little depression, and then we ask God for forgiveness, and we start it all over again? Do we live caught in that cycle, or do we understand who we are, that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, regardless of what we go through, or regardless of what we do, that we are always in right standing with him? Not that we don't need to repent but that we understand nothing takes us out of that position with God.